Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits different. The 2024 Fiat 500e is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500e at fiat.com. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. Hey everyone, it's Carter. This week on Unsolved Murders, we're doing something a little different. We're excited to bring you Edgar Allan Poe's 1842 short story, The Mystery of Marie Roget, in which he attempted to solve a real murder case, as you've never heard it before. As many of our longtime listeners know, we covered the murder of Miss Mary Cecilia Rogers in February 2017 and explored the mysterious death of Edgar Allan Poe in October 2016. Every day this week, we will release an episode of our adaptation, which is considered to be one of the first murder mysteries to feature details from a real crime. This is the third episode of a five-part series. If you haven't listened to the previous installments yet, check them out before resuming this episode. And don't forget to tune in tomorrow to continue the story. In part two, new physical evidence was discovered, contradicting local newspapers' recent reporting. A parasol and a handkerchief with Marie Roget embroidered were found in a wooded area that clearly showed signs of a struggle. Marie's betrothed is discovered dead by overdose of laudanum. So far, Dupin has soured towards the conclusions of the press and has begun to refute their baseless claims regarding the identification and decomposition of the corpse. The question remains, will this new evidence get him closer to the truth behind Marie's death? Without further ado, we are excited to present part three of Unsolved Murders, The Mystery of Marie Roget. And now, what are we to make of the argument that the body found could not be that of Marie Roget, because three days only having elapsed, this body was found floating? If drowned, being a woman, she might never have sunk, or having sunk, might have reappeared in 24 hours or less. But no one supposes her to have been drowned, and dying before being thrown into the river, she might have been found floating at any period afterwards whatever. But, says L'Etoile, if the body had been kept in its mangled state on shore until Tuesday night, 
some trace would be found on shore of the murderers. Here it is at first difficult to perceive the intention of the reasoner. He means to anticipate what he imagines would be an objection to his theory, viz. that the body was kept on shore two days, suffering rapid decomposition, more rapid than if immersed in water. He supposes that, had this been the case, it might have appeared at the surface on the Wednesday, and thinks that only under such circumstances it could so have appeared. He is accordingly in haste to show that it was not kept on shore, for if so, some trace would be found on shore of the murderers. I presume you smile at the sequitur. You cannot be made to see how the mere duration of the corpse on the shore could operate to multiply traces of the assassins. Nor can I. And furthermore, it is exceedingly improbable, continues our journal, that any villains who had committed such a murder as is here supposed would have thrown the body in without weight to sink it, when such a precaution could have so easily been taken. Observe here the laughable confusion of thought. No one, not even L'Etoile, disputes the murder committed on the body found. The marks of violence are too obvious. It is our reasoner's object merely to show that this body is not Marie's. He wishes to prove that Marie is not assassinated, not that the corpse was not. Yet his observation proves only the latter point. Here is a corpse without weight attached. Murderers, casting it in, would not have failed to attach a weight. Therefore, it was not thrown in by murderers. This is all which is proved, if anything is. The question of identity is not even approached, and L'Etoile has been at great pains merely to gainsay now what it has admitted only a moment before. We are perfectly convinced, it says, that the body found was that of a murdered female. Nor is this the sole instance, even in this division of his subject, where our reasoner unwittingly reasons against himself. His evident object, I have already said, is to reduce, as much as possible, the interval between Marie's disappearance and the finding of the corpse. Yet we find him urging the point that no person saw the girl from the moment of her leaving her mother's house. We have no evidence, he says, that Marie Roger was in the land of the living after nine o'clock on Sunday, June the 22nd. As his argument is obviously an ex parte one, he should at least have left this matter out of sight. For had anyone been known to see Marie, say on Monday or on Tuesday, the interval in question would have been much reduced, and by his own ratiocination, the probability much diminished of the corpse being that of the grisette. It is nevertheless amusing to observe that L'Etoile insists upon its point in the full belief of its furthering its general argument. Reperuse now that portion of this argument which has reference to the identification of the corpse by Bouvet. In regard to the hair upon the arm, L'Etoile has been obviously disingenuous. Monsieur Bouvet, not being an idiot, could never have urged in identification of the corpse simply hair upon its arm. No arm is without hair. The generality of the expression of L'Etoile is a mere perversion of the witness's phraseology. Coming up, the credibility of the news report is called into question. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. 
Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now back to the story. He must have spoken of some peculiarity in this hair. It must have been a peculiarity of color, of quantity, of length, or of situation. Her foot, says the journal, was small. So are thousands of feet. Her garter is no proof whatever, nor is her shoe, for shoes and garters are sold in packages. The same may be said of the flowers in her hat. One thing upon which Monsieur Bouvet strongly insists is that the clasp on the garter found had been set back to take it in. This amounts to nothing, for most women find it proper to take a pair of garters home and fit them to the size of the limbs they are to encircle, rather than to try them in the store where they purchase. Here it is difficult to suppose the reasoner in earnest. Had Monsieur Bouvet, in his search for the body of Marie, discovered a corpse corresponding in general size and appearance to the missing girl, he would have been warranted, without reference to the question of habiliment at all, in forming an opinion that his search had been successful. If, in addition to the point of general size and contour, he had found upon the arm a peculiar hairy appearance which he had observed upon the living Marie, his opinion might have been justly strengthened, and the increase of positiveness might well have been in the ratio of the peculiarity or unusualness of the hairy mark. If, the feet of Marie being small, those of the corpse were also small, the increase of probability that the body was that of Marie would not be an increase in a ratio merely arithmetical, but in one highly geometrical or accumulative. Add to all this, shoes such as she had been known to wear upon the day of her disappearance, and although these shoes may be sold in packages, you so far augment the probability as to verge upon the certain. What of itself would be no evidence of identity becomes through its corroborative position proof most sure. Give us then flowers in the hat corresponding to those worn by the missing girl, and we seek for nothing farther. If only one flower, we seek for nothing farther. What then if two or three or more? Each successive one is multiple evidence, proof not added to proof, but multiplied by hundreds or thousands. Let us now discover, upon the deceased, garters such as the living used, and it is almost folly to proceed. But these garters are found to be tightened by the setting back of a clasp, in just such a manner as her own had been tightened by Marie shortly previous to her leaving home. It is now madness or hypocrisy to doubt. What L'Etoile says in respect to this abbreviation of the garters being an usual occurrence shows nothing beyond its own pertinacity in error. The elastic nature of the clasp garter is self-demonstration of the unusualness of the abbreviation. What is made to adjust itself must of necessity require foreign adjustment, but rarely. 
It must have been by an accident, in its strictest sense, that these garters of Marie needed the tightening described. They alone would have amply established her identity. But it is not that the corpse was found to have the garters of the missing girl, or found to have her shoes, or her bonnet, or the flowers of her bonnet, or her feet, or a peculiar mark upon the arm, or her general size and appearance. It is that the corpse had each and all collectively. Could it be proved that the editor of L'Etoile really entertained a doubt? Under the circumstances, there would be no need in his case of a commission de lunatico inquirendo. He has thought it sagacious to echo the small talk of the lawyers who, for the most part, content themselves with echoing the rectangular precepts of the courts. I would here observe that very much of what is rejected as evidence by a court is the best of evidence to the intellect. For the court, gutting itself by the general principles of evidence, the recognized and booked principles, is averse from swerving at particular instances. And this steadfast adherence to principle, with rigorous disregard of the conflicting exception, is a sure mode of attaining the maximum of attainable truth in any long sequence of time. The practice in mass is therefore philosophical, but it is not the less certain that it engenders vast individual error. In respect to the insinuations leveled at Bouvet, you will be willing to dismiss them in a breath. You have already fathomed the true character of this good gentleman. He is a busybody, with much of romance and little of wit. Anyone so constituted will readily so conduct himself, upon occasion of real excitement, as to render himself liable to suspicion on the part of the over-acute or the ill-disposed. Monsieur Bouvet, as it appears from your notes, had some personal interviews with the editor of L'Etoile, and offended him by venturing an opinion that the corpse, notwithstanding the theory of the editor, was, in sober fact, that of Marie. He persists, says the paper, in asserting the corpse to be that of Marie, but cannot give a circumstance, in addition to those which we have commented upon, to make others believe. Now, without readverting to the fact that stronger evidence to make others believe could never have been adduced, it may be remarked that a man may very well be understood to believe, in a case of this kind, without the ability to advance a single reason for the belief of a second party. Nothing is more vague than impressions of individual identity. Each man recognizes his neighbor, yet there are few instances in which any one is prepared to give a reason for his recognition. The editor of L'Etoile had no right to be offended at Monsieur Bouvet's unreasoning belief. The suspicious circumstances which invest him will be found to tally much better with my hypothesis of romantic busybodyism than with the reasoner's suggestion of guilt. Once adopting the more charitable interpretation, we shall find no difficulty in comprehending the rose in the keyhole. The Marie upon the slate, the elbowing the male relatives out of the way, the aversion to permitting them to see the body, the caution given to Madame B. that she must hold no conversation with the gendarme until his return, Bouvet's, and lastly, his apparent determination that nobody should have anything to do with the proceedings except himself. It seems to me unquestionable that Bouvet was a suitor of Marie's. 
that she coquetted with him, and that he was ambitious of being thought to enjoy her fullest intimacy and confidence. I shall say nothing more upon this point, and as the evidence fully rebuts the assertion of L'Etoile, touching the matter of apathy on the part of the mother and other relatives, an apathy inconsistent with the supposition of their believing the corpse to be that of the perfumery girl. We shall now proceed as if the question of identity were settled to our perfect satisfaction. In a moment, a conflict of interest is explored. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now back to the story. And what, I here demanded, do you think of the opinions of Le Commerciel? That, in spirit, they are far more worthy of attention than any which have been promulgated upon the subject. The deductions from the premises are philosophical and acute. But the premises, in two instances at least, are founded in imperfect observation. Le Commerciel wishes to intimate that Marie was seized by some gang of low ruffians not far from her mother's door. It is impossible, it urges that a person so well known to thousands as this young woman was should have passed three blocks without someone having seen her. This is the idea of a man long resident in Paris, a public man, and one whose walks to and fro in the city have been mostly limited to the vicinity of the public offices. He is aware that he seldom passes so far as a dozen blocks from his own bureau without being recognized and accosted. And, knowing the extent of his personal acquaintance with others, and of others with him, he compares his notoriety with that of the perfumery girl, finds no great difference between them, and reaches at once the conclusion that she, in her walks, would be equally liable to recognition with himself in his. This could only be the case were her walks of the same unvarying, methodical character, and within the same species of limited region as are his own. He passes to and fro at regular intervals within a confined periphery, abounding in individuals who are led to observation of his person through interest in the kindred nature of his occupation with their own. The walks of Marie may, in general, be supposed discursive. In this particular instance, it will be understood as most probable that she proceeded upon a route of more than average diversity from her accustomed ones. The parallel which we imagine to have existed in the mind of Le Commerciel would only be sustained in the event of the two individuals traversing the whole city. In this case, granting the personal acquaintances to be equal, the chances would be also equal that an equal number of personal rencounters would be made. 
For my own part, I should hold it not only as possible, but as very far more than probable that Marie might have proceeded at any given period by any one of the many routes between her own residence and that of her aunt, without meeting a single individual whom she knew or by whom she was known. In viewing this question in its full and proper light, we must hold steadily in mind the great disproportion between the personal acquaintances of even the most noted individual in Paris and the entire population of Paris itself. But whatever force there may still appear to be in the suggestion of Le Commerciel will be much diminished when we take into consideration the hour at which the girl went abroad. It was when the streets were full of people, says Le Commerciel, that she went out, but not so. It was at nine o'clock in the morning. Now, at nine o'clock of every morning in the week, with the exception of Sunday, the streets of the city are, it is true, thronged with people. At nine on Sunday, the populace are chiefly within doors preparing for church. No observing person can have failed to notice the peculiarly deserted air of the town from about eight until ten on the morning of every Sabbath. Between 10 and 11, the streets are thronged, but not at so early a period as that designated. There is another point at which there seems a deficiency of observation on the part of Le Commerciel. A piece, it says, of one of the unfortunate girl's petticoats, two feet long and one foot wide, was torn out and tied under her chin and around the back of her head, probably to prevent screams. This was done by fellows who had no pocket handkerchiefs. Whether this idea is or is not well-founded, we will endeavor to see hereafter. But by fellows who have no pocket handkerchiefs, the editor intends the lowest class of ruffians. These, however, are the very description of people who will always be found to have handkerchiefs even when destitute of shirts. You must have had occasion to observe how absolutely indispensable of late years to the thorough blackguard has become the pocket handkerchief. And what are we to think, I asked, of the article in Le Soleil, that it is a vast pity its indicter was not born a parrot, in which case he would have been the most illustrious parrot of his race. He has merely repeated the individual items of the already published opinion, collecting them with a laudable industry from this paper and from that. The things had all evidently been there, he says, at least three or four weeks, and there can be no doubt that the spot of this appalling outrage has been discovered. The facts here restated by Le Soleil are very far indeed from removing my own doubts upon this subject and we will examine them more particularly hereafter in connection with another division of the theme. At present, we must occupy ourselves with other investigations. You cannot fail to have remarked the extreme laxity of the examination of the corpse. To be sure, the question of identity was readily determined, or should have been, but there were other points to be ascertained. Had the body been in any respect despoiled? Had the deceased any articles of jewelry about her person upon leaving home? If so, had she any when found? These are important questions utterly untouched by the evidence, and there are others of equal moment which have met with no attention. We must endeavor to satisfy ourselves by personal inquiry. The case of Sanustache must be re-examined. I have no suspicion of this person, but let us proceed methodically. 
we will ascertain beyond a doubt the validity of the affidavits in regard to his whereabouts on the Sunday. Affidavits of this character are readily made matter of mystification. Should there be nothing wrong here, however, we will dismiss Sonestash from our investigations. His suicide, however corroborative of suspicion, where they're found to be deceit in the affidavits, is, without such deceit, in no respect an unaccountable circumstance, or one which need cause us to deflect from the line of ordinary analysis. In that which I now propose, we will discard the interior points of this tragedy and concentrate our attention upon its outskirts. Not the least usual error in investigations such as this is the limiting of inquiry to the immediate, with total disregard of the collateral or circumstantial events. It is the malpractice of the courts to confine evidence in discussion to the bounds of apparent relevancy. Yet experience has shown, and a true philosophy will always show, that a vast, perhaps the larger portion of truth, arises from the seemingly irrelevant. It is through the spirit of this principle, if not precisely through its letter, that modern science has resolved to calculate upon the unforeseen. But perhaps you do not comprehend me. The history of human knowledge has so uninterruptedly shown that to collateral or incidental or accidental events, we are indebted for the most numerous and most valuable discoveries that it has at length become necessary in any prospective view of improvement to make not only large, but the largest allowances for inventions that shall arise by chance and quite out of the range of ordinary expectation. It is no longer philosophical to base upon what has been a vision of what is to be. Accident is admitted as a portion of the substructure. We make chance a matter of absolute calculation. We subject the unlooked for and unimagined to the mathematical formulae of the schools. I repeat that it is no more than fact that the larger portion of all truth has sprung from the collateral, and it is but in accordance with the spirit of the principle involved in this fact that I would divert inquiry, in the present case, from the trodden and hitherto unfruitful ground of the event itself to the contemporary circumstances which surround it. While you ascertain the validity of the affidavits, I will examine the newspapers more generally than you have as yet done. So far, we have only reconnoitered the field of investigation, but it will be strange indeed if a comprehensive survey, such as I propose, of the public prints will not afford us some minute points which shall establish a direction for inquiry. Thank you for listening to part three of our five-episode series covering the mystery of Marie Roget. In part four of our mystery, Detective Dupin pulls together seemingly unrelated news stories attempting to connect Marie's disappearance to her murder. Was it an elopement, a tryst, or merely a coincidence? Could she really have been killed by a gang? Or more probably, was Marie's murderer someone she knew? Tune in tomorrow to continue the story. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. I'm Carter Roy. 